This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Lottery of Babylon by Jorge Luis Borges. It's read by Mr. Jim Moon of the Hypnagoria podcast. It runs 21 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterwards. The Lottery in Babylon Like all men of Babylon, I have been proconsul. Like all, I have been a slave. I have known omnipotence, ignominy, imprisonment. Look here, my right hand has no index finger. Look here, through this gap in my cape, you can see on my stomach a crimson tattoo. It is the second letter, Bet. On nights when the moon is full, this symbol gives me power over men with the mark of Gmail. But it subjects me to those with the Alif, who on nights when there is no moon owe obedience to those marked with the Gmail. In the half-light of dawn, in a cellar, standing before a black altar, I have slit the throats of sacred bulls. Once, for an entire lunar year, I was declared invisible. I would cry out, and no one would hear my call. I would steal bread, and not be beheaded. I have known that thing the Greeks knew not. Uncertainty. In a chamber of brass, as I faced the strangler's silent scarf, hope did not abandon me. In the river of delights, panic has not failed me. Heraclides Ponticus reports admiringly that Pythagoras recalled having been Phyrus, and before that, Euphorbus, and before that, some other mortal in order to recall similar vicissitudes. I have no need of death, nor even of imposture. I owe that almost monstrous variety to an institution, the lottery, which is unknown in other nations, or at work in them imperfectly or secretly. I have not delved into this institution's history. I know that sages cannot agree. About its mighty purposes, I know as much as a man untutored in astrology might know about the moon. Mine is a dizzying country in which the lottery is a major element of reality. Until this day, I have thought as little about it as about the conduct of the indecipherable gods, or of my heart. Now, far from Babylon and its beloved customs, I think with some bewilderment about the lottery, and about the blasphemous conjectures that shrouded men whisper in the half-light of day or evening. My father would tell me how once, long ago, centuries, years, the lottery in Babylon was a game played by commoners. He would tell, though whether this is true or not I cannot say, 
how barbers would take a man's copper coins and give back rectangles made of bone or parchment and adorned with symbols. Then, in broad daylight, a drawing would be held. Those smiled upon by fate would, with no corroboration by chance, win coins minted of silver. The procedure, as you can see, was rudimentary. Naturally, these so-called lotteries were a failure. They had no moral force whatsoever. They appealed not at all to a man's faculties, but only to his hopefulness. Public indifference soon meant that the merchants who had founded these venal lotteries began to lose money. Someone tried something new, including among the list of lucky numbers, a few unlucky draws. This innovation meant those who bought those numbered rectangles now had a twofold chance. They might win a sum of money, or they might be required to pay a fine, sometimes a considerable one. As one might expect, that small risk for every thirty good numbers, there was one ill-omened one, piqued the public's interest. Babylonians flocked to buy tickets. The man who bought none was considered a pulsillanimous wretch, a man with no spirit of adventure. In time, this justified contempt found a second target, not just the man who didn't play, but also the man who lost and paid the fine. The company, as it was now beginning to be known, had to protect the interest of the winners, who could not be paid their prizes unless the pot contained almost the entire amount of the fines. A lawsuit was filed against the losers. The judge sentenced them to pay the original fine, plus court costs, or spend a number of days in jail. In order to thwart the company, they all chose jail. From that gauntlet thrown down by a few men sprang the company's omnipotence, its ecclesiastical metaphysical force. Some time after this, the announcements of the numbers drawn began to leave out the lists of fines and simply print the days of prison assigned to each losing number. That shorthand, as it were, which went virtually unnoticed at the time, was of utmost importance. It was the first appearance of non-pecuniary elements in the lottery. And it met with great success. Indeed, the company was forced by its players to increase the number of unlucky draws. As everyone knows, the people of Babylon are great admirers of logic, and even of symmetry. It was inconsistent that lucky numbers should pay off in round silver coins, while unlucky ones were measured in days and nights of jail. Certain moralists argued that the possession of coins did not always bring about happiness, and that other forms of happiness were perhaps more direct. Lower caste neighbourhoods of the city voiced a different complaint. 
the members of the priestly class gambled heavily, and so enjoyed all the vicissitudes of terror and hope. The poor, with understandable or inevitable envy, saw themselves denied access to that famously delightful, even sensual wheel. The fair and reasonable desire that all men and women, rich and poor, be able to take part equally in the lottery inspired indignant demonstrations, the memory of which time has failed to dim. Some stubborn souls could not, or pretended they could not, understand that this was a novus ordo secularum, a necessary stage of history. A slave stole a crimson ticket. The drawing determined that that ticket entitled the bearer to have his tongue burned out. The code of law provided the same sentence for stealing a lottery ticket. Some Babylonians argued that the slave deserved the burning iron for being a thief. Others, more magnanimous, that the executioner should employ the iron because thus fate had decreed. There were disturbances. There were regrettable instances of bloodshed. But the masses of Babylon at last, over the opposition of the well-to-do, imposed their will. They saw their generous objectives fully achieved. First, the company was forced to assume all public power. The unification was necessary because of the vastness and complexity of the new operations. Second, the lottery was made secret, free of charge, and open to all. The mercenary sale of lots was abolished. Once initiated into the mysteries of Baal, every free man automatically took place in the sacred drawings, which were held in the labyrinths of the god every sixty nights, and determined each man's destiny until the next drawing. The consequences were incalculable. A lucky draw might bring about a man's elevation to the council of the Magi, or the imprisonment of his enemy, secret or known by all to be so, or might allow him to find, in the peaceful dimness of his room, the woman who would begin to disturb him, or whom he had never hoped to see again. An unlucky draw, mutilation, dishonor of many kinds, death itself. Sometimes a single event, the murder of C in a tavern, B's mysterious apotheosis, would be the inspired outcome of thirty or forty drawings. Combining bets was difficult, but we must recall that the individuals of the company were, and still are, all-powerful and clever. In many cases, the knowledge that certain happy turns were the simplest result of chance would have lessened the force of those outcomes. To forestall that problem, agents of the company employed suggestion, or even magic. The paths they followed, the intrigues they wove, were invariably secret. To penetrate the innermost hopes and innermost fears of every man, 
They called upon astrologers and spies. There were certain stone lions, a sacred latrine called Kafka, some cracks in a dusty aqueduct. These places, it was generally believed, gave access to the company. And, well, or ill-wishing persons, would deposit confidential reports in them. An alphabetical file held those dossiers of varying veracity. Incredibly, there was talk of favoritism, of corruption. With its customary discretion, the company did not reply directly. Instead, it scrawled its brief argument in the rubble of a mask factory. This apologia is now numbered among the sacred scriptures. It pointed out, doctrinally, that the lottery is an interpolation of chance into the order of the universe, and observed that to accept errors is to strengthen chance, not contravene it. It also noted that those lions, that sacred squatting place, though not disavowed by the company, which reserved the right to consult them, functioned with no official guarantee. This statement quieted the public's concerns, but it also produced other effects, perhaps unforeseen by its author. It profoundly altered both the spirit and the operations of the company. I have but little time remaining. We are told that the ship is about to sail, but I will try to explain. However unlikely it may seem, no one, until that time, had attempted to produce a general theory of gaming. Babylonians are not a speculative people. They obey the dictates of chance, surrender their lives, their hopes, their nameless terror to it. But it never occurs to them to delve into its labyrinthine laws, or the revolving spheres that manifest its workings. Nonetheless, the semi-official statement that I mentioned inspired numerous debates of a legal and mathematical nature. From one of them, there emerged the following conjecture. If the lottery is an intensification of chance, a periodic infusion of chaos into the cosmos, then is it not appropriate that chance intervene in every aspect of the drawing, not just one? Is it not ludicrous that chance should dictate a person's death, while the circumstances of that death, whether private or public, whether drawn out for an hour or a century, should not be subject to chance? Those perfectly reasonable objections finally prompted sweeping reform. The complexity of the new system, complicated further by its having been in practice for centuries, are understood only by a handful of specialists, though I will attempt to summarize them, even if only symbolically. Let us imagine a first drawing, which condemns a man to death. In pursuance of that decree, another drawing is held. Out of that second drawing come, say, nine possible executors. Of those nine, 
four might initiate a third drawing to determine the name of the executioner. Two might replace the unlucky draw with a lucky one, the discovery of a treasure, say. Another might decide that the death should be exacerbated, death with dishonor, that is, or with the refinement of torture. Others might simply refuse to carry out the sentence. That is the scheme of the lottery put symbolically. In reality, the number of drawings is infinite. No decision is final. All branch into others. The ignorant assume infinite drawings require infinite time. Actually, all that is required is that time be infinitely subdivisible, as in the famous parable of the race with the tortoise. That infinitude coincides remarkably well with the sinuous numbers of chance and with the heavenly archetype of the lottery, beloved of the Platonists. Some distorted echo of our custom seems to have reached the Tiber. In his Life of Antonius Heliogabalus, Elias Lampradius tells us that the emperor wrote out on seashells the fate he intended for his guests at dinner. Some would receive ten pounds of gold, others ten houseflies, ten dormice, ten bears. It is fair to recall that Heliogabalus was raised in Asia Minor among the priests of his eponymous god. There are also impersonal drawings whose purpose is unclear. One drawing decrees that a sapphire from Tabrabana be thrown into the water of the Euphrates, another that a bird be released from the top of a certain tower, another that every hundred years a grain of sand be added or taken from the countless grains of sand on a certain beach. Sometimes the consequences are terrible. Under the company's beneficent influence, our customs are now steeped in chance. The purchaser of a dozen amphorae of the Damascusine wine will not be surprised if one contains a talisman or a viper. The scribe who writes out a contract never fails to include some error. I, myself, in this hurried statement, have misrepresented some splendor, some atrocity perhaps too, some mysterious monotony. Our historians, the most perspicacious on the planet, have invented a method for correcting chance. It is well known that the outcomes of this method are, in general, trustworthy. Although, of course, they are never divulged without a measure of deception. Besides, there is nothing so tainted with fiction as the history of the company. A paleogeographic document, unearthed at a certain temple, may come from yesterday's drawing, or from a drawing that took place centuries ago. No book is published without some discrepancy between each of the edition's copies. Scribes take a secret oath to omit, interpolate, alter. Indirect falsehood is also practiced. The company, with godlike modesty, shuns all publicity.
Its agents, of course, are secret. The orders it constantly, or perhaps continually, imparts are no different from those spread wholesale by impostors. Besides, who will boast of being a mere impostor? The drunken man who blurts out an absurd command, the sleeping man who suddenly awakens and turns and chokes to death the woman sleeping by his side, are they not, perhaps, implementing one of the company's secret decisions? That silent functioning, like God's, inspires all manner of conjectures. One scurriously suggests that the company ceased to exist hundreds of years ago, and that the sacred disorder of our lives is purely hereditary, traditional. Another believes that the company is eternal, and teaches that it shall endure until the last night, when the last god shall annihilate the earth. Yet another declares that the company is omnipotent, but affects only small things, the cry of a bird, the shades of rust and dust, the half-dreams that come at dawn. Another, whispered by masked Hesiriarchs, says that the company has never existed, and never will. Another, no less despicable, argues it makes no difference whether one affirms or denies the reality of the shadowy corporation, because Babylon is nothing but an infinite game of chance. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Brian Alexander. I'm Mr. Jim Moon. And I'm Paul. And we're going to talk about the Babylonian Lottery, or sometimes called the Lottery in Babylon, which is by Jorge Luis Borges, first published in Spanish in 1941 and in English in 1962. And uh, I think I hadn't read this one before. Um, I sometimes got it confused with the the Library of Babel, but I'm pretty sure I hadn't read this one before. And it is baffling, mystifying, and uh, I think really, really interesting. Had you guys read this before? Uh, I had a long, long time ago, but as a, a lot of Borges' stories, you read a lot at once, they start blurring and seeping into one another. <laughs> they do. They really do. That's a very Borgesian thing. I, this is like the second mm. or third story I ever read of Borges, so... So uh, the first one I had was um, uh, the Garden of Forking Paths, which I think is is a masterpiece um, and, and maybe a little under, better understandable than this one. But I don't say it's a better story. I just think it's more uh, slightly more comprehensible. Um, but I have some really interesting ideas about what's going on in here. But actually, I'm I'm even more interested in the framing story, what little there is of it, or at least how this circumstances of this lottery are being told to us um, and there's almost nothing to give that detail except a little tiny bit at the beginning and a little mention uh, about halfway through the middle of the story 
um, about what the context is. Do you guys even notice the context of he's on what, who's telling he's it? He's leaving. He's on a ship or getting ready to leave. Right. And we don't know who he's talking to. One translation, it says, uh, this is a statement in this statement, which makes me think of uh, the statement of Randolph Carter, but mm-hmm. it's not the same kind of statement. You know, not a statement of the facts for the police, I don't think, um, given how talkative he is. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we also get a, a little bit of insight into what he looks like. I assume it's a he. Um, he's missing the first finger from his right hand, and he's got a cloak under which, or in which there's a rent, a cut in the cloak. And you can see a scar, or not, not a scar, a tattoo uh, with this, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Beth, on it, or Bet, on it. And that is part of the story as well. And so I don't know who this guy is, but I have lots of interesting ideas. You guys got any guesses? I, he I, he's, looks like he's fleeing the city, that he's, that the, the vicissitudes of chance in Babylon and the the fault of the company is finally driving him to get out of Dodge, as it were. Well, he's he's already left. He says he's far away from Babylon, so we don't know where he is, but he's, again, getting on a ship. So it doesn't sound like he's going back, though, either. No. Sheldon puts me in mind of a, a weird cross between uh, Coleridge's The Ancient Mariner and Forrest Gump. <laughs> he's a guy sat on a bench someone sits kind of sit you know, sit, sit down next to him saying you know, where are you going you know, what, what's we to do with the finger and thus mm-hmm. he begins mm-hmm. um, I wonder if he is a uh, either a company member or a, uh, a powerful advocate for the company because he really really hates anybody who doesn't understand the truth of the lottery uh, and he's really quick with terms like uh, abomination and criminal. Um, so, you know, at the, uh, the very end, one abominably, one uh, conjecture, abominably insinuates that the company has not existed for centuries. Uh, the sacred disorder of our lives is purely hereditary and traditional. You know, so it's it's not just wrong or interesting, but it's abominable. And, and, yeah, the sacred disorder, I love that. And he does say positive things about Kaiser Agassiz, when he talks about the company, thanks to the beneficent influence of the company, the company with divine modesty. Yes. It's yeah. Silas functioning comparable to that of God. So he he does seem to, even if he's far away from Babylon, still have an affection for the company and what it's doing. And as you said, it's he seems to uh, disregard with the. Uh, with vile horror, the idea that it doesn't exist, which is which is where the end, where the ending of this goes. Another <laughs> speaking with the mouth of the mask, Hyserarchs, which means, of course, uh, so, so someone who uh, is a heretic, a uh, leader of heretics, says that it has never ex- never existed and never will exist. That is to say, the company. Yeah. Um. When uh, why company? So I that got me to thinking. Um. You know, like a corporation and. Paul, you and I did a show uh, on a Philip K. Dick novel that's kind of similar to this. Um, uh, it's called The uh, Solar Lottery, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Yep. And I, it was The Solar Lottery? Yeah. The Solar Lottery. Yeah, in which you get your job uh, by the twitching of the bottle, right? Um, sort of randomness. Um, 
and they're, the plot of the novel, which that one has a plot, <laughs> um, is that somebody's trying to game the system or something like that. And uh, that's not run by a company, though. But in a lot of Philip K. Dick novels, it would be. Some company would run it. But I, I was thinking then the other meaning of company um, is just a, a group of people, right? A fellowship. Uh, right. That made me think of the very first line of the story, which I think is really interesting. Um, which it goes, like everyone in Babylonia, I have been a proconsul. And like everyone, a slave. I've known omnipotence, opprobrium, and imprisonment. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I think it'd be pretty hard for everyone to have been proconsul. I mean, even if you have a lot of consuls, right? Uh, how can even every so everyone be proconsul? Everyone a slave, maybe. You know, if if it's changing every ninety days, we're told, or sometimes we're told that. Um, that's kind of weird. I would say, you know, like a lot of people in Babylon, I've been proconsul. But that is I, 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 I think it's more of a metaphorical thing to say, I've been the most high and I've been the most low. I've, I've known greatness and I've known deprivation. Mm-hmm. So I think he's, I think it's almost like a poetic way of saying, yeah, I've been at the top and I've been at the bottom thanks to this lottery and over and over again. Right. There's a sense that these are metonymies for, um, for the high and low. I, I think that's exactly mm-hmm. right. But the other thing is, if we don't know when this takes place, uh, indeed, and if if say we go by oh you know um, classical populations, let's say the population has ten thousand people, uh, and the lottery switches things day by day, um, it'd be possible for everyone to have a chance of being proconsul in about thirty right. years. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm reminded of the great underrated classic 1990s movie, Dark City. Hmm. Um, where you know every every right, night right. they reboot the city and mm-hmm. change people up, and you get that Bor- those Borgesian moments when you know someone starts off as a uh, one night they they're a, a poor line worker, and after the transformation they're a very rich banker, um, and they slide back and forth just easily between those. Um, so I, I I'm I'm with you, man. I think this is a, a metonymy. That makes sense. However. I think there's something, another possibility. And, and one of the other things is, no matter what you posit about what's going on, he also makes sure that you know that some of this is lies, right? <laughs> no matter what. Um, every, every scribe ensures that there's lies in there. Um, every, uh, even the, the thing that I'm telling you right here, my friend, whoever he's telling us to, um, is going to have some inaccuracies, right? Right. Uh, deliberate, deliberately included. This yeah. actually uh, became really funny to me because uh, I was listening to the audiobook version or an audiobook version, um, and then I was reading the story, and then I read another translation uh, in English, mm-hmm. and they, I started noticing differences between the texts. Obviously, that's legit, right? In different translations, mm-hmm. you know, it's Babylonia or Babylon, but then the hand. That he was holding, that has its missing finger, changed hands. I thought, oh, it's his, I, I, I made note, it's his left hand, right? And then suddenly, it was his right hand. And then I thought, well, that can't be right. And I went back and looked, and I couldn't find evidence that it had, it had ever been one or the other. Oh. Now, 
this is a super Borgesian thing because he did this to every everything he translated, right? He would go in and change genders on characters. There's a story about him uh, rewriting. Um, oh no, there's a French author who rewrote uh, or translated and and then rewrote um, Poe's uh, The Pit and the Pendulum, mm-hmm. and he changed the title uh, on that to uh, uh, um, The Loss of Hope or something like that. The French author did. And then Borges translated that author's uh, reworking of the Poe story, um, took out the uh, the religious elements. The, the main character was a Jew, and the the, uh, the executioner or the torture was a, a, a papist or something like that. And then uh, Poe uh, took out the... the re- no, not Poe. Borges took out the religious elements, just made it one guy of the same sect torturing another guy of the same sect, and then called the and and then had the same ending, but he called the story hope. Right? So oh. um a story without hope has hope. <laughs> like it he's uh, Borges thought that the, the title gave away the fact that it was gonna be about the absence of hope. Mm. Whereas if you have the title of the story Hope, um you're gonna be devastated by the ending. But he also took um, one of his first stories was a translation of uh, Oscar Wilde, and he changes the gender of one of the uh, characters, and that has consequential effects on all the other genders of the other characters. And so the story comes out entirely differently. So just, you know, changing what hand it is, whether... (laughs) I got it wrong, or in one of the translations, I got it, it was flipped. This is very Borgesian anyways. And so not having a firm ground on any particular detail really helps, <laughs> I think, sort of solidify the effect. Well, uh, uh, just, what know. can we trust? Exactly. Well, here's here's one thing that's been bugging me about this story. And I this was, I think, the second Borges story I read. I basically just sat down with labyrinths and read it straight through and then had like re-sew the top of my head back on. But um, <laughs> this was, um, and I've taught this one before. Um, it's one of my favorites. And one thing that caught me this time, a lot of things caught me. I mean, I, one of the great things about Borges is I can just reread this forever, mm-hmm. is the bit about one of the company's communications. And uh, it, this is... Um, the company, with its usual discretion, did not answer directly to complaints. It preferred to scrawl in the rubbish of a mask factory, a brief statement which now figures in the sacred scriptures. And when, I, when I read this the first time, I thought, this reminds me of Philip K. Dick, especially later mm-hmm. with his emphasis on trash and kibble. Um, and then it gave me a Thomas Ligotti vibe because of that post-industrial mask aspect. But now I'm I'm wondering this would be a good datum to support the idea that this entire story is a myth invented by this guy on the run, mm-hmm. because something scrawled in the dust of a mask factory. How it's graffiti, right? Or it's incomprehensible. Right, right. Um, I could easily imagine this guy simply assembling all this because that's the incredibly powerful finale where it's possible. You know, one of the heresies is. It doesn't exist. It never existed and will not. That basically the lottery has become coexistent with chance 
and fate itself. So that lottery is a myth we tell ourselves to make sense of chance. So, you know, perhaps this guy is on the run from either trying to install the lottery someplace, or this is the myth he tells himself he's pushing on to us. Nice. It could be. I mean, just actually, there's a very Ligotian um, echo. There's a Ligotti story called The Red Tower, yes. which is very similar to this. And that ends with kind of, after describing this strange red tower that spews out these strange artifacts that turn up unwanted in people's houses and in attics and in junk shops, like yeah. strange metronomes with eyes on and weird, surreal shapes. At the end, of he describes this tower and what it makes and what's in the different floors, but it ends with kind of, but, you know, my, my colleagues all refuse to believe and say that the tower is just a rumour. <laughs> you realise, you know, the, the narrator you've been talking to is an authentic madman. Mm. Um I mean, kind of at the beginning of this, you have these sort of strange hints of sort of sacrifices and the Hebrew letters, which kind of it gives you a hint that maybe this guy is some sort of priest or sorcerer. Um, yeah, thing of, thing of, there is a touch of um, uh, Kabbalistic magic in the beginning because he mentions the the letter Gimel and a camel and a sacrifice to the moon and on the tree of life, the uh, the path that is represented by the Hebrew letter Gimel is the path of the moon. Yeah, that I think that comes up again too, um, deep in the story on page four of, of our translation, uh, the, the last little bit on the second column. It says, "Sometimes a single act, the assassination of C, in a tavern, or the mysterious apotheosis of B, was the fortunate outcome of thirty or forty draws." And I was like, "Well, where's A?" <laughs> in these two examples. Well, actually, if we go back to the beginning. Um, he opens that, or we see the rent in his cloak, the tattoo of Beth. He's, he's B, right? Mm, right. And the apotheosis of B, the mysterious apotheosis, he turned into a god. Or he was deified because, because they also, and then, and that's a theme that goes through this because he talks about, um, Antonius Heliogobulus, the, um, uh, the Roman mm. emperor who, was dedicated to Sol Invictus, and of course, as you as you all know, a lot of Roman emperors were deified after death, and some tried to get deified while they weren't quite dead. So that whole raising up to a the status of a god, the, a god of what? A god of chance, obviously, since we're dealing with mm. the lottery here. Mm. I, I, that Heliogabalus mention also makes me go back to another Dick novel. Dick and Borges have a lot in common, I think. Um, in very different men, but very interesting, similar ideas or overlaps. Anyways, uh, Paul, you were on our show for um, the Martian time slip story. Yep, a novel. Um, there was a Martian named Heliogabalus. I love. That. And but was that Brian? I love that. It's just such a, yeah. a throwaway thing from Dick. Right? Totally. Um, and. This is the Martian who takes in the uh, the autistic boy, right? Right. Um, and where he can spend time with this kid and make sense – a kid who can't make sense of the world or who makes sense of it in a different way than we do uh, can can live the Martian lifestyle and become fully human or something like that. It's uh, – it, that – they're reading the same books, right? These guys are classical readers, uh, omnivorous readers. And they're drawing from the same, the same things. Oh, 
I don't know when you guys were little and you first heard about about reincarnation. Uh, you th- probably thought like me that's a pretty cool idea, right? Um, but I always thought nobody ever thinks it through logically enough and goes goes the extra step. And I think that Borges might be doing that in here. Maybe I'm projecting, but I want you to listen to this weird theory I came up with when I was a kid. Um, so we always remember it's in a cartoon or something like there's a, uh, a guy in a madhouse who says, I'm Napoleon, right? Yeah. <laughs> in a former life, I was Napoleon, right? And then the, the next joke is, uh, there's another guy in the, you know, the next bed over and he says, no, I'm Napoleon. Right? <laughs> well, they can't both be right. We say, and yet, um, I think they might in this theory of taking reincarnation, uh, to be more than just, uh, you know, wish fulfillment of my life's kind of boring. And in my past life, I was a, you know, a princess or whatever. Uh, you can, you can say, well, what if we are living in a universe in which, uh, yes, reincarnation happens and that we do have past lives, but, and therefore we will also have future lives, but actually there's only one soul. That is, uh, if, if, if souls are real, and I think this is even hinted at here in the story with the platonic uh, references near the end, um, we leave our bodies, go to the land of the forms, and then come back in another body. But then, uh, if that's happening anyways, we don't really need to follow the laws of time. So you can come back in another body uh, in the future, in the past, and in fact, you have already. So when you're the torturer, in uh, the pit and the pendulum, the guy you're torturing is also you. <laughs> um, this uh, fits in also with a really nice uh, f- uh, modern philosophy um, theory of justice, um, or not theory of justice, but an idea of of h- how to think about what justice would be. John Rawls has this idea called the veil of ignorance, right. in which we're all behind a veil of ignorance in the land of the forms, not knowing which body we're going to be put into on earth, whether we're going to be born to a rich family, be born into a disabled body, be uh, born in Africa or in Europe or whatever. And then we ask these souls, which body would you like to be born into um, before they go? Not knowing which one you're going to get. It's a lottery in essence. So people might gamble and they say, well, I might, I, I'm going to, I want to be born into a, uh, rich European body, right? <laughs> As opposed, a rich European healthy body, uh, that's going to live a long time. And another person will say, well, that's not fair. I, I, I think we should all be equal. So if we imagine the idea of the veil of ignorance as applying here on earth, what we would want for other people is what we would want for ourselves, right? that everybody be elevated when they're low and everybody who's high be brought down to make it more equal for everyone. This is uh, about justice. But looking back at the very first line, like everyone in Babylon, I have been a proconsul and like everyone, a slave. I've known omnipotence, opprobrium and imprisonment. So if we take it literally true, as opposed to uh, metonymy, is it yeah, yeah. or synecdoche? I can't remember which one it is. Um, then he is the slave who's uh, being hurt 
for stealing a lottery ticket. And he's also uh, the proconsul because of his birth status, right? Being born into a rich family. And he has a scarlet tattoo on the rent in his cloak, but we actually can't see all of his body. We can only see through that rent in his cloak. He probably, in this theory, also has a gimbal tattoo somewhere else on his body. And an aleph one somewhere else. Exactly. And the fact that he's going on this mysterious trip, right? Yeah, I'm far away from Babylon now, but let me tell you how it works back in Babylon. Um, he might be, you know, waiting for uh, uh, Charon to uh, show up in his <laughs> boat. <laughs> but if what you're saying is true, then what you're seeing is a perfect story for the middle of the 20th century. That, yeah. that is when income inequality faded and the uh, most of the uh, many, many nations saw the least unequal economic situations they'd ever experienced. But then mm-hmm. that makes this the most inappropriate story for the 21st century where income inequality <laughs> has shot through the roof, is increasing with no sign of slowing down, and social mobility is beginning to ossify so that it becomes harder and harder to have this. That opening sentence would be completely inappropriate because, <laughs> like all men in Babylon in 2016, I'm a proconsul and that's it. Or I'm a slave and that's it and you'll do your job. And this is a radical document now. Mm-hmm. J- jumping off a little bit, I, I want to point out just how timeless the events are. We, we touched on this briefly before. And this, and when is this taking place? We know we have some. We have a boundary that must take place after the the rule of the Emperor Heligopolis in about 300 A.D. Because otherwise, how would we know about it? But here's here's the problem: the city of Babylon was abandoned. I think it was about 150 B.C. or so. It got wrecked and destroyed. So Babylon doesn't even exist by the time we talk about this emperor. So how could he be from a city that has been in the sands for hundreds of years. So when does this story actually take place? It's, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's extremely vague on that point. I mean, we, we don't get any real sense of technology. I mean, you're scrolling on walls, lottery tickets, ships, but it's a city that's long since buried in the ground and gone. Mm-hmm. If, if, I think that fits with the, the timelessness theory of it, right? Uh, and and the fact that we've got a story about the barbers, um, it, sort of the mythology of where the the lottery that ultimately came into you know full fruition came from, is it starts with coins, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, regular lottery and becomes something. But he also says that this is a sort of a mythological start, and that also you can't trust anything I'm saying exactly because naturally there are. Uh, designed to be obfuscations and lies here and there. The scribes take a secret oath to omit, to interpolate, to change. The indirect lie is also cultivated. And you you just picked up on the word that I've been noticing again and again. Interpolate. Right? And I, I looked it up because I forgot what interpolate means. And interpolate is, is when you're like doing a graph and you you know you chart, chart the number here on this date, and then you chart the next the next date and where the number is on the on the graph, and then you make a line on that chart, making a curve, putting in all the points in between. 
And that's in this story, too. He he says uh, people who don't understand the, the lottery uh, make the mistaken idea that there is only an infinite number. Or there's not an infinite number of um, uh, people. Therefore, oh, yeah. How's it go? Here it is. This is the symbolic scheme. In reality, the numbers of draws is infinite. No decision is final. All lead on to a number of others. The ignorant suppose that infinite draws require infinite time. In reality, all that is necessary is that time shall be infinitely divisible, as we learn from the famous parable of the race with the tortoise, <laughs> which <laughs> I this is one of those Zeno stories that I was like, there's something wrong with this. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, space is not infinitely divisible either, right? Theoretically, it is. But atoms aren't infinitely divisible, I don't think, um, or the no. subatomic particles, right? So, like, if you if I have a mass of, uh, you know, like a pie, an actual, you know, strawberry pie or something, um, it, it theoretically it's divisible as a theory. But I'm going to run out of atoms uh, of, of pie. Yeah, right? once you get I down to the blank length. Right. Mm. So, I mean, I might be able to feed the 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 people of the Earth with you know, atoms from this pie, not that they would notice it at that level, but I won't be able to feed the inhabitants of all human history, or maybe I could, <laughs> but they still wouldn't taste it. Um, <laughs> and so uh, there's something tricky going on here. He's making a step from, you know, that that where the origins of this started, and then it turns the company into kind of a religion, a religious explanation for fate which i think is kind of what the story is doing anyways but on on that same tone thinking about how how timeless this story is or what time it's set uh it makes note on the wikipedia entry on here uh, about this little joke and i think it's a fun joke but i don't think it's they made it as explicit as i'd like to uh on the same page on page five there were certain stone lions there was a sacred latrine called Q-A-P-H-Q-A. There were certain <laughs> clefts in dusty aqueduct, which, according to popular belief, led to the company. Well-wishers or ill-wishers left their reports in these places. The information, which was of variable authenticity, was pre preserved in an alphabetical file. So that Q-A-P-H-Q-A -A is Kafka. <laughs> <laughs> but... It's not just, um, and of course, Kafka has the company in, uh, in stories like The Castle, right? Um, where, you know, people are just doing things to him and he doesn't know why. Life is just happening. It's, that's a great little reference. But I love that. So cute. It's, it's so cute, but <laughs> get this. It's a sacred latrine. <laughs> so it's a holy shit. <laughs> it's Fisher, yes. <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. That's great. What a little what a little buried reference there. It is a little buried reference. So uh, I mean it, it, that's only part well. Now, there's one other thing that's really cool. Um and it, it you know, we have it in the mask factory. I don't know about you, but uh, I I know they must exist mask factories cuz masks do get made. But in ancient Babylon apparently they had to have actual factories for masks. Um, and at the end, we have that the masked 
masked higher hierarchs. Hierarchs, yeah. right? The masked hierarchs. So they're hidden from us, right? And then we've got the mask factory to make the masks for the masked. Has, 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 how do you say it? Hierarchs. Okay. Um. Then we have this anonymous guy telling this story, right? So, I think that the mask factory is like it's like behind the veil of ignorance. The messages come from the yeah, as as you're saying, Brian, the the kipple in the mask factory, right? The answers to the messages sent down the sacred latrine and shoved into the cracks in the sacred lions or the two lions and the and the dusty aqueduct, right? They're they're answered and put into the holy scriptures from the ruined walls, the scribbles on the ruined walls in the masked factory. So you this is a layer you have this layer upon layer of of disguise and hiddenness and mystery, and the more the story goes on, the thicker the layers accumulate. Mm-hmm. And it becomes more and more difficult. I mean, there's one of the reasons why you have the tease of Plato in here several times is mm-hmm. you know, our, we're still in the cave, we're looking at these shadows cast by figures that aren't really real. Um and it's interesting that the you know, in the allegory of the cave, the idea is to leave and actually see reality. At the end of the story, our narrator is leaving, but he's not offering us a glimpse into reality unless he thinks he is. <laughs> so the company, um, if it's not, if it's not, uh, you know, an organization of a, a cabal of uh, that runs the actual, you know, lottery ticket Good scheme. Word Good choice of words. Cabal. Yes. Mm. Yeah. If it's if it's not that, then it makes me think of the company as a, as the group of people and that all the people who go through the system are the company, right? It's not just like a, a subset of all the people in Babylon. It's everyone in Babylon is a part of the system. Every choice that anybody makes, um, you know, this guy, that guy's a thief. We should condemn him for death for thieving, right? Uh, what made him a thief? The fact that he stole. Well, why did he steal? Like he didn't have anything, right? Um, so it must be lottery. <laughs> that's right. He is he is a part of the secret cabal, right? We're all a part of the secret cabal. We're all wearing masks. It's and the company is us. Every, 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 everyone's part part of that conspiracy. It kind of reminds me of the uh, role playing game Paranoia, yes. where yeah, where mm. every everybody's part of a secret society. Everybody's a mutant, and everyone's hiding it from everybody else. Trust the computer, right? Trust the computer, exactly. <laughs> Trust the company. Well, one of the one of the things that I there's so many things to love about this story. There's one I just want to mention before we before we run out of time, which is the um, the cleverly intertwined nature of it. Where you know, okay, so Jesse gets rewarded with a special dinner, but it means that um, Mr. Jim Moon gets to be dragged into being one of the waiters providing it. <laughs> and that's that's Jim's punishment and Jesse's reward. <laughs> and then uh, and then tomorrow I'm going to get a special book as my present, but it's going to be stolen from uh, from Jesse's library because Jesse's losing. That's the, that's his name. I mean, I love this this complex intertwined nature. I think Charlie Strauss had this in mind in a book where he posits a spy based MMO 
but it's a live action LARP MMO where people get to pretend to be there in a big spy enterprise and they get asked to do things and they're all with each other. So they get asked to go pick up a document from a dead drop in one part of town. And it means that somebody else had to drop it there or place it there. And that plays a role in somebody else's game. I, I just, I love that idea. That's so different from mm-hmm. what we still have as a classic lottery, which is that precise allocation, you know, Fred gets to win and that's it. Um, the intertwined nature is just brilliant. Yeah, and and it all fits in with that, you know, the everybody's in secret societies, right? From that very first page, he says, In the dawn twilight, I have throttled the sacred bulls in a cellar before a black stone. For a whole u- lunar year, I've been pronounced invisible. <laughs> the, there's an episode of uh, the new Twilight Zone right. from the 80s that is that, right? Right, based on the Silverberg story, yep. Exactly. And this idea of, you know, you reach into this story and you can pull out a thousand stories. Right? Um, and, and I love that the, the men who are doing these actions in the, in the secret dungeons under the city of Babylon are pronouncing the fates of other men in this, in the city who are also in secret dungeons doing, right? So it, it is, Every every connection between every person affects every other person, and the the thief who steals the the red lottery ticket is executed for being a thief, and because the red lottery ticket says uh, your punishment will be to be executed, and then they argue as to why he should be executed. Right? No, he should be executed because he got the ticket. He should be executed because he stole a <laughs> ticket. No matter what happens, he gets executed. Well, that's a, so that's a, that's, fate is unavoidable. But that's also a classic religious problem. You know, why does bad stuff happen? Because God mm-hmm. willed it. Why does good stuff happen? Because God willed it. How come I don't understand this? Because God willed it. You know, it becomes this, you know, universal solvent to all problems. And the, and the lottery of Babylon is that universal mm-hmm. solvent. Yep. Uh, but I think it also, very cleverly, I think it applies to the modern day um scientific view that in its kind of crudest form says well it's all just lumps of rock and atoms doing stuff and it's all random chains of cause and effect mm-hmm. uh, and it, at the it, top don't go for it and you know kind of any kind of notions of order are in you know <laughs> or laws of science it, to be honest are almost a conspiracy theory because at the end of the day you get down to you know, the strange quantum world where it is all about probabilities collapsing one way or another. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, you know, the whole universe is, as Einstein put it, you know, God playing dice. Mm. Actually, yeah, the medium-sized objects like people, right, are are subject to laws <laughs> of <laughs> physics and such. But the, um, the, it, it, the infinitely divisible atoms, right, atoms is uncuttable, um, are subject to different laws which are um infinite chance right it could mm. it, radioactive decay right it goes right into that ghost. the physics of the time borges was born right the ghosts and shadows of quantum mechanics mm-hmm. but this is this is from the 30s right this is the era when quantum mechanics was being born yeah it's uh published in 41 excuse me first time 41 yeah but it, it probably took... Oh, no, he, he spoke perfect English, so he probably read it. <laughs> well, he spoke contemporary English, and he was also an expert in Anglo-Saxon. 
Yeah, and and he was studying Norwegian uh, history or something at the end of his life. As one does. As As one one does. does. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to that at some point (laughs) down the road. But yeah, I I think this is a wonderful story and one where, yeah, any writer could go in here and just extract one paragraph and write write a whole book about (laughs) about (laughs) some premise that's hidden there within. It kind of reminds me of uh, Stapledon that way. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yep. Although this is even more concentrated because instead of a whole novel sapling here, you have just several right. pages of this, of this weird twisting world that you can take stuff out and, and I wonder if that Silverberg Invisible story was inspired by this. Did Silverberg read? I wouldn't, re- I wouldn't re- be surprised yeah, at all. Yeah, it wouldn't be. I, I don't know if it explicitly was, but yeah, it would be fascinating if he, if he had taken it from there. And it might be the case that, um, that, you know, it wasn't from Borges directly either. It may be, you know, he was incredibly well read. Uh, that's what he he was all about. And in fact, um, I think he, he he was like Lovecraft. He his his family had a huge library as a kid. That's where he spent his time. I mean, it's in a lot of his stories. The Library of Babel and. So many other it, reading and books are his dreams, right? And here, it's the opposite. It's it's a hope of what's the lottery is a is a game of hope, but in this world, the lottery punishes, <laughs> not just gives you hope. Yeah, really. Uh, it's it's evenly balanced. I mean, and then you get there's some weird lines about that here. There's a uh, there's this. You know, you think about this narrator. If you focus on him, there's um, he's he's really dark. There's this bit about. Uh, hang on, let me find this. Um, of these executors, um, let's see. Another will intensify the death penalty. That is, will make it infamous or enrich it with tortures. Mm-hmm. I thought, man, not many people would call torture an enrichment. That's an unusual perspective. Well, from the perspective of the torturer, that's a bonus. Well, it depends if the torturer is getting into it or it's just a job, you know. <laughs> but from the, you know, this is a, this is a very, very twisted character. Um, our our hard to glimpse narrator. Mm-hmm. And it just it cuts off, right? It's like he's just stepped away from the conversation. Or not? It's not a conversation from from the monologue. He just like steps off. Ah, but but that last sentence is like a thesis statement. You know, this is um, the reality of the shadowy corporation because Babylon is nothing else than an infinite game of chance. I mean, it's it's a it it feels offhand, but actually this is a nice thesis or a, or a synthesis for everything in the story so far. And but he he says that it's just as just as unbelievable, right? No, it's Yeah. And what, what's worse? It, what, what, what's the worst horror? Is is it worse that if the corporation, the company is real and is doing this, or if it is really all just random chance being interpolated through the society? What's the, what's the worst horror? Oh, good point. Is the, uh, is the lottery then a kind of consolation religion, the one that you have to believe mm. Because the the stark fact of randomness is just too terrifying. Exactly. Which in 1941 might not be a, a bad thing to think about. 
This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.